Psalm 122. Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Well, when you come together with God's people in God's house, many thoughts may enter your head as you go through that process, but I wonder whether one of them is, and I think it's unlikely that it is, whether one of those thoughts that comes into your head as you enter into God's house with God's people, this is almost as exciting as falling in love. Whether it's a Taylor Swift song or the uh, even better poetry of Romeo and Juliet. Valentine's Day, which is tomorrow, by the way, you men out there. I can see a few people looking worried suddenly. Wait till after the service. You sort out it then. Valentine's Day uh, is associated with a romantic buzz, of course, in our culture. So much so that in some ways it can even debase the bigger notions of love. In fact, perhaps partly in response, some people... Some thinkers say that romantic love itself is a bit of a myth. The classic book uh, by M. Scott Peck, the uh, psychologist, uh, his book called The Road Less Traveled, he made this kind of point. He said that romantic love is like the breaking down of two ego boundaries, so there's a momentary melding together. That's all it is, he says, a necessary infatuation, a pleasant one perhaps, but temporary, and one which you must get through in order to have the ego boundaries reform and have to do the hard work of actually loving another person as another person. Well, as a pastor, I have a lot of sympathy with the view that our culture puts too much weight in the idea of falling in love. After all, what happens when you fall out of love? Is love like a tree that you climb across a rather fragile branch that if you fall out of it again, what do you do then? You're back to moaning in isolation. 
Is that what love's like, or is love more like an act, a commitment, a reaching out to help another person, whatever the situation may be, whatever you're going to get out of that person? You see, I meet people who have been so hurt by the tendencies of our culture to think of love purely as sex. I suppose, in fact, if we did a sort of word association game and just put the word love out there, many of us might immediately think sex. After all, you make love. Of course, today, some people just have friends with benefits, As I say, I doubt many people would associate love with the word church or God's house or God's people in its best sense. The psalmist does, though. He says, may they be secure who love you. The word there for love was a word that probably originally carried, you see, the overtones of the love of a husband to a wife. But then was used, that word, more generally of many other kinds of love. It's not the word, no, it's not the word that makes me think that the psalmist is loving being with God's people. It's the whole tone of his poetry. He is excited. He's thrilled. He's bubbling over. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Wow, I'm standing at her door. Can I get up the courage to ring the doorbell? Look at Jerusalem, how wonderfully built. It's all so fantastic. Look at her, isn't she smashing? Jerusalem is very much a she that he is loving. Now that's very important today because as M. Scott Peck and other more recent commentators on the contemporary scene have noticed, our tendency is to love in a self-orientated way. If we love another person, it is perhaps only one other person. And if we love them, our tendency is to love them as long as we're getting what we want or need from them. But what if there is a love that we can experience that is meant to be for each other? Eric Fromm, in his The Sane Society, wrote, There is not much love to be found in the world of our day. There is rather a superficial friendliness concealing a distance, an indifference, a subtle distrust. Superficial friendliness, a hail fellow well met, a glad handing. And because of this, we are a generation longing for community. The technological revolution in which we are in the middle shows that above all, I think, 
as we talk with people all around the world through social media and have friends in other countries and other places and connect immediately. We're in a sort of high-tech reality beyond that which we could have conceived of just a few short years ago. But we also long at the same time for what someone has called a high-touch reality that goes along with that high-touch. Tech. And so Egypt, as we watch in our news with all that's going on, fueled to some extent by the communication of Facebook and Twitter, nonetheless they want to congregate together in the central city square. Keith Miller asserts, though, churches today are filled with people who outwardly look contented and at peace but are inwardly crying out for someone to love them. Confused, frustrated, guilty, often unable to communicate even with their own families. But the problem is that other people they see in church look so happy and content and self-sufficient, they've never had the courage to admit Their deepest needs. I want you to have that courage this morning to admit your deepest needs. These psalms do, as we've been working through them. The psalmist in the psalm last week looked up to the hills to find help from God. He was admitting some need. But now in this psalm, he seems convinced that in Jerusalem, he's going to find all of those needs met. Nothing other than joy. That's the sense of the poetry. Roses are red. Violets are blue. My God is good. My church is too. It's very striking, really. He, he's not one of these people who loves Jesus, but he's not too sure about the church. For him, as for the New Testament too, God and his people are intimately connected. The great theologian Augustine said, non salus extra ecclesia, that is, no salvation outside of the church, a principle that was taken and abused in church history in medieval times for sure. But in its essence, as I think he meant it, it is true. And always has been. For when we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, when we are saved, we are thereby joined to God's people. A person of God who is not a part of the people of God is a strange anomaly. Uh, Kevin DeYoung and Ted Cluck have coined a new term for describing this grotesque anomaly, as John Stott called it. They say, if decapitate, uh, de- when you decapitate someone, decapitation from the Latin word caput means to cut off the head, then it stands to reason that decorpulation from the Latin word corpus should refer to the cutting off of the body. In other words, if there are some churches by their tendency not to listen to Jesus through his word who are in danger of decapitated, if you like, then there are some Christians by their tendency 
to not live in connection with the church who are in danger of being decorpulated from Christ's body. Now, that's all very well to say, but how do you have this jump-up-and-down excitement about going to church without faking it? Well, enough uh, what uh, Dick Lucas, the British preacher, called overly long introductions. He called them wagging on the tee as you're about to hit the golf ball down the fairway. So enough wagging on the tee, and let's drive the ball down the fairway. Um, The psalmist here has two reasons. He has practiced two disciplines that cause him to look at church through the rose-tinted spectacles of a young lover. First, he resists individualism. He resists individualism. Well, he totally overcomes it. Individualism is a particular plague, perhaps, of our age, but as we are all individuals, it's always been a tendency. Look at how the ancient psalmist dealt with community instead. He was glad when they said, let us, note the us, let us us go up to the house of the Lord. What are you doing on Sunday morning? Going to church or going to sports practice? What are you doing this weekend going to Jerusalem, which is what I hear they call Wheaton, (laughs) or going skiing for the weekend? It's okay to have some fun sometimes. And you know what? Having fun, in its best sense, can include coming to church. Strange thought. He was glad when they say, let's go to that God's house. Then note how Jerusalem becomes a place for all the tribes to go up. All the tribes. Inevitably, church is a big tent. There are people from different tribes that have different shibboleths, different emphases. And that's part of not being taken in by individualism, even a theological kind of individualism. Some of us attempted to so refine our theological distinctiveness that uh, the only people we could uh, join in church with would be us. And even then, we might not be quite sound. And the old saying, if you find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll only spoil it. That's also true. True of those of us who, instead of rejecting other tribes for their theological differences, reject them for their, what we perceive of as their moral failures. That doesn't mean we lower the standards and let the world in. It means we have a church where anyone could come and join us for worship on Sunday morning and evening, where the gospel is preached, where people repent of their sins, where they are discipled in small groups, where then they move towards membership and then join the church. And even as church members, we're not always easy to love, but we love the community as an opportunity to keep on getting rid of the temptation of individualism. Dostoevsky said that hell is the suffering of being unable to love. 
Well, church is God's antidote to society's narcissism. It is his new society at the heart of God's new purpose for the world. It is the place where true revolutionary change can take place for the world. I met this week with the president of Youth for Christ International, a man called David Raitz. And he is describing how the new generation rising up around the world are longing for change, dissatisfied with poverty and injustice and the old order. Well, we can do something about the need for a good kind of change, but only together as God's people, not just God's person individualistically. So, the first part of this psalm is a clear rejection of any individualistic notion of what it means to have a relationship with God. Me, my God, my Bible, and my Starbucks latte is not the people of God. Me and my two friends at Starbucks is not God's people getting together. Now, of course, the people of God is not the same as the building. The Old Testament believers may have been particularly prone to that temptation with the physical impressiveness of Jerusalem and even the temple. There is a universal sense of the people of God and not just a local sense of the people of God. But to be a part of the universal people of God, you need to be part of the local people of God. Otherwise, it's like saying, I love everyone in general without actually loving anyone in particular. You can't love the people of God if you're not actually getting down into the trenches with a particular local people of God. Well, the psalmist, though, goes even further than simply rejecting individualism in his experience of infatuated joy with God's people and God's house. He also, and perhaps even more remarkably as a model for many of us today, he also rejects cynicism. Why it's so easy to be cynical about God's people or the local church or the tradition of a particular Christian group or evangelical subculture or what have you. And you can be sure I find it as difficult as anyone to be excited by the sort of Jesus is my homeboy Christianity. Or, on the other hand, the dry as ditch water kind on the other side of the happy clappy divide. Where smiling in the congregation of God's people is viewed as mildly risky. story about this from uh, Irma Bombeck, the humorist, who was sitting in church one Sunday when a small child turned around and began to smile at the people behind her. You know how children can be. She wasn't making any noise, this child. And uh, when her mother noticed what was going on, she said in a stage-like whisper that could carry right the way through the church, stop that grinning, you're in church. <laughs> she then gave her a swat and said, that's better. But while the psalmist is jumping up and down in excitement, I rejoiced. He's excited. That's true. He doesn't give in to cynicism about the tradition of his fathers. 
or the authority invested in God's people. In fact, he seems just as excited about the well-built walls and the thrones of judgment as he is about any sort of emotional experience he might personally have with uh, the friendship with others with whom he is going up to Jerusalem. Cynicism, you see, is often about the past, about those who have gone before us, whereas the psalmist is thrilled by the veteran religion all around him. Cynicism, you see, is often about authority and authority figures, whereas this psalmist is thrilled by the judgment meted out by the royal authority of the king in the line of King David. Isn't it remarkable, if this psalm was written by King David, that it was sung by pilgrims afterwards without a trace of a feeling that, oh well, he was just self-serving talking about that, the justice of the throne of the King David. Whisper it. But a lot of the cynicism about God's people is just a cynicism about the authority of God's word which is, at root, a cynicism about the authority of God. It's so easy to say, I follow Jesus, but I don't want to do what the church says or the Bible says. But how is that, my friend, different from saying, I'll do whatever my friend says. I love him that much, I'll do whatever my friend says, except what he actually says. If you know your Shakespeare, perhaps you'll remember the scene from King Lear when the king has given to his daughters everything and then found that they take it all but do not even say thank you, much less look after him in his old age. There's one line that goes like this, blow, blow thou winter wind, thou art not so unkind as man's ingratitude. You know, it's too easy to be cynical about our parents or our parents' church without realizing what they have given us. But he has none of that ingratitude. He has resisted that form of cynicism that just grabs what you want and won't let anyone else tell you otherwise. And instead, he embraces the justice of God, for he knows that justice is the path to peace. Without fairness, without order, there can be no peace in a community. You you see, it's fairly straightforward to resist individualism and embrace the community of God's people, but it takes a little more work to be so overjoyed about the authority of God's Word to decide what is right or wrong for me to do, and not just to give in to the lazy cynicism that it's just that someone wants to control me. What if instead it's because God wants your peace? Uh, Peace here, of course, is not just the absence of war. It is shalom, the presence of wholeness. Oliver Wendell Holmes said that love is sparingly soluble in words, meaning that love is so difficult to define. But we know it when we feel it. And when we experience it, we tend to find that we are being inched closer to this sort of shalom. 
And when it is the love of God, we are being inched forward, bit by bit, in the end, to eternal shalom. That's the other aspect. The most important aspect of all of the cynicism that he is refusing to give into. And that is cynicism about the future. He says, For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. You see, there's a whole story here, a story that he's letting himself be a part of on the journey. Jerusalem was a city that we find uh, first in the Bible as the home of Melchizedek, the strange priest king whose story is only told in full again in the New Testament and the book of Hebrews. The story of Jerusalem goes underground for a while and then we meet it once more when the Israelites took over the land and it was the stronghold of the Jebusites and they called it Jebus. Initially it was such a strong location that it was not taken and later the Benjamites, the tribe of Benjamin, settled for just living in concord with the Jebusites who were within the fortress citadel until David came and through some novel means and under the hand of God took over the city and made it his city, the city of David. He brought the ark of God there and his son Solomon built the temple What a glorious achievement, but of course, God's people did not manage to stay faithful to God, and despite many, many warnings from the prophets, they gave in to idolatry and began to trust in the external form, not the internal reality. The temple, the temple, the temple, they cried, the physical building, God would never let his city, the physical Jerusalem, fall. The northern territories might go, but no one could take the city of God. And so they lived in ways displeasing to God, thinking they would be safe. And under his discipline, his gracious discipline, they were taken into exile to be returned, as God promised many years later, to rebuild the temple. A sight that thrilled some and made others weep for disappointment when we remembered the glories of the old temple. They were a people in captivity still under foreign power despite a brief reign of the Maccabees and then under King Herod, a vassal king for the Roman Empire. The temple, though, was built up again to some form of magnificence. And, of course, it was to this temple that Jesus came. This city into which Jesus walked. Perhaps you remember the scene as he looked out over Jerusalem and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, quoting from Psalm 122 verse 8, he loved them and he wanted to win them. But they rejected Jesus and crucified him. Yet in God's sovereign plan, as Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, than he would lay down his life for his friends. And Jerusalem, continuing to dream of a material kingdom, of military power, attempted to throw off the overlordship of Rome, and Jerusalem was sacked, and the temple destroyed, and then it happened again, and the Israelite people were expelled.
And one day, the Jerusalem that is above will be revealed. The spiritual Jerusalem of which we all partake who believe in Jesus. And as part of Jesus, we are a part of that master plan. There's no room for cynicism in such a vision of the future as we trace the dots through the story of the Bible. Only the seeking of the good of God's people, His church, all around the world. Here, America, Europe, Egypt, the Middle East. It's a love story. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So every time you are tempted to feel fed up with church, or cynical about God's people, or say to yourself, why do I need all these other folk? Why can't I just get along by myself? Just look at the bride. Look at how God feels about his people. How God feels about you. How God wants you to feel about the church. To seek her good, her prosperity, her wholeness. What's more? Every time you are tempted to feel unloved or even unlovable, just think what it would be like to be part of a group for whom God himself would come down, would live, would die, would rise again in order that we might have peace, we might have wholeness now and evermore. Yes, Every trembling instinct, every longing romance, every hopeful glance, every long-tenured relationship is a mere glimmer, a mere shadow, a mere echo of the love story. For sure, if you want to know how to make your wife happy, treat her like this. And if you want to know how to make your man happy, respond like this. Far more importantly, if you want to make God happy, love his people. For that is the center of his heart. After all, his valentine was not cheap or tawdry, commercialized or trite but rugged, even bloody. Where all his disappointments towards his people and all his people's betrayals were sacrificed and dealt with to win peace. And if that doesn't make you a little bit happy, 
I don't know what will. Let's pray together. Father, the, uh, the church below can seem so full of difficulties and sins because it is full of sinners. Help us, Father, when we look at the church, this church as well. To see the spiritual reality and the eternal destiny that the person we are sitting next to, the person we find annoying or frustrating, that we are all, if Christians, a part of your people. Help us, Father, to know that that love that you have for us is unfailing. To see in this love story the romance that will not end and that will not fade. And that by your Spirit, would you, Father, please pour that love into our hearts as your dearly beloved people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.